If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 12. We're going to take the last 11 verses of that chapter, so verse 49 uh, down through 59. And as we've, we've been working through Luke chapter 12, um, and then specifically as I was preparing for this, this 11 verse passage here at the very end of what is a, a lengthy sermon from Jesus, um, I came across a Charles Spurgeon quote that uh, really jumped out to me that I've thought about a lot over the course of this chapter in the last month or so. And in it, Charles Spurgeon says, consider how precious a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. Uh, how valuable a soul must be that both God and the devil would not only be after it, like Charles Spurgeon says, that both that, but that both God and the devil would make a consuming passion of their existence to be those souls. Satan in the ongoing attempt to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. And God in the sending of his son to save a people for himself, for his glory. That's how precious the souls of human beings are. And it's because of that reality that Jesus, as recorded here in Luke chapter 12, has been painting a stark picture about the reality of eternity as it relates to the souls of humanity. That you, me, any human being either lives in submission to the king, Jesus, and to his kingdom, his rule and his reign in their life, or in rebellion to the king and his kingdom, his rule and his reign. What we're going to see this morning is just how deeply the passion that Jesus has for saving a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue for the glory of God, how deep that passion runs for him. When I drove in this morning, it's not there anymore. It was there during the first two services. But when I drove in this morning, right on the corner by the stoplight here, there was a sign in the church's grass. Someone had put it there that says, Joe, said, Joe loves Jessica always and forever. I hope the sign being gone doesn't mean that Jessica showed up and said, I don't feel the same way and took the sign. I pray that that's not the case. Joe loves Jessica always and forever. It was handwritten. It was very thoughtful. Um, We're going to see here that Jesus' heart for sinners is a love that is always and forever in a way that is much deeper than Joe's sign out there on the yard when I drove in. So the end point this morning is this, the glory of God and the saving of God's people is Jesus's consuming passion. The glory of God and the saving of God's people is Jesus's consuming passion. If you've got the Bible open there, I'm gonna start reading in Luke 12, 49. I'm gonna read through the end of the chapter. This is Luke quoting Jesus speaking. Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already set ablaze. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how it consumes me until it is finished. Do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowd, Crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say a storm is coming, and so it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the ruler, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Then he won't drag you before the judge. The judge hand you over to the bailiff and the bailiff throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last cent. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can gather here in a place like this and declare like we did in the first song, petition and ask that you would open up the heavens because we want to see you. God, when we sing that, when we ask that, God, we praise you that you have, you've literally shook the heavens with the glory of your son, his death on the cross. And we can see you most clearly displayed there. And so when we sing, open up the heavens, we want to see you, God. I pray that you would also open our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our minds, that as we gather together in corporate worship and to open your word, God, that we would see you displayed in the person of Jesus Christ fully and completely, your glory displayed in his work on the cross fully and completely, you revealing yourself in us to, in, to us in your word, all that we need to know about who you are and what you've done on our behalf in the person of Jesus. God, would you help us to see that clearly this morning? Would your spirit move among us, take the truth of your word, press it deeply into our hearts Lord, might we be reminded this morning or see for the very first time just how deeply Jesus' love for the people of God runs. Show us that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you just kind of the brief breakdown of the passage here. In the first two verses, there's Jesus makes a statement and that's where we're gonna see this consuming passion that he has then, then he follows that with two other statements about him being the dividing line for humanity and the dividing line in history. And then there's a parable at the end that's going to force us to kind of ask a question of ourselves. And so that's how we're going to kind of work through things. The glory of God and the saving of God's people is Jesus's consuming passion. Look at verses 49 in the first part of verse 50. It's like a sentence and a half. Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze, but I have a baptism to undergo. Fire and baptism. It'll help us a lot in understanding this passage if we're clear on what Jesus is talking about, particularly in those two words. When Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth, he's not talking there about the fire that that comes with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He's talking about a different sort of fire. He's talking about the consuming fire of the Lord's judgment, that Jesus came to bring that fire on the earth. That is the topic of the entire sermon here in Luke chapter 12, judgment and eternity, the reality, the importance, the significance of those things, that there is this fire coming and that that fire will have the ability to do one of two things, like fire always does, either consume or refine. That's what fire can do. There's a popular colloquialism, you've maybe heard it, you maybe haven't, that the same fire that melts the butter hardens the egg. That's the idea here. Jesus has come to bring fire. That fire is God's judgment, and that judgment will do one of two things to people. It will either destroy, consume them, or it will refine and glorify them. Jesus 
is the only means by which we are saved. God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ makes it so that that fiery judgment will be a moment of glorification for those who have been saved by God's grace. And those who have not, that fiery judgment will be a moment of being consumed. And that will be swift and complete like we saw last week. Fire. I came to bring that, Jesus says. How I wish it were already set ablaze. And then he says, I have a baptism to undergo. That word baptism does not mean the sort of immersion in water that we see practiced here on Sunday mornings for believers or the baptism that Jesus underwent in the Jordan River. He's already had that baptism. He's not going to have it again. So he's talking about something different here. This is the kind of baptism that's shorthand for saying a difficulty or a trial or a suffering. I have a trial, a suffering to undergo. When someone starts a new job or something and they go to work and early on in the experience, everything that could go wrong does go wrong. Worst case scenario, and someone says, oh, it was a real baptism by fire. That's the sort of baptism that Jesus is talking about here. And that phrase, baptism by fire, is actually like the perfect one to encapsulate the passage here. Put all that together, Jesus is saying, He's going to experience the full weight of the trial of God's fiery judgment. That's going to happen at the cross. He came to bring that judgment on the earth, to absorb that judgment on our behalf. He came in order to save a people from every tribe, nation, tongue, from the consuming fire of God's holy judgment against sin. And he came to do that for the glory of God. That picture of God as consuming fire That's not unique here to Luke chapter 12. In fact, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4, later in the New Testament, in the epistles, Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says, God is a consuming fire. In our moment of judgment, we'll either be consumed and destroyed or we will be refined and glorified. Jesus on the cross, he is consumed by that judgment. But thanks to his sinless perfection, he's raised from the dead and he's glorified. We will be one or the other. Consumed and destroyed, to borrow from last week's passage, there will be swift and complete rejection for those who have not been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ because of their sin. Or, individual in their moment of judgment will be refined and glorified, rewarded and served, to borrow from last week's passage. And that will be on the basis of God's grace faith in Jesus Christ, submission to the king. His righteousness will cover them and they will be glorified. But in order for that to be the case, Jesus had to come and he had to suffer in our place. I came to bring fire on the earth, fire of judgment, and I have a baptism or a suffering, a trial to undergo. Then notice the back half there of verse 50. In one phrase, what could be one sentence, but here it's a clause in a longer sentence, Jesus says, how it consumes me until it is finished, exclamation point. That's no like passing, boring statement from Jesus. I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished, Jesus says. It's the One sentence encapsulation there of Jesus's heart for sinners. This is the heart of the Savior for God's people. Jesus is not an unwilling, disinterested, argumentative substitute for us. 
He says, I came to bring fire. I wish it were already ablaze. I have a baptism to undergo. It consumes me until it's finished. It is the consuming passion of Jesus' life to undergo the fiery baptism of God's righteous and holy judgment against sin in order to save sinners for the glory of God. Back at one of the Gospel of Luke's key turning points in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke told us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross. He started this long journey from north in Galilee down to Jerusalem. Why? Because it was his consuming passion to fulfill the purpose for which he was sent, the eternally decreed purpose, and that was the display of God's glory in the salvation of God's people. How far into that journey are we? Not sure. We're like two and a half chapters. There's no time stamps in the Gospel of Luke. Has it been months? Has it been weeks? We don't know. But what we do know is that the same passion that caused Jesus to set his face toward Jerusalem back a few weeks, months, days ago, is the same passion that compels him to continue forward. Jesus is consumed by fulfilling the reason for which he was sent to the earth. It is the passion that controls, constrains, compels, consumes his life. That by going to the cross for the glory of God, he would rescue God's people, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Now, don't be abstract about this. We can talk kind of intellectually and theologically and we can get it into a nice phrase that rolls off the tongue well for the slide there, but be practical about this. What is the heart of Christ for God's people? What is the heart of the Savior towards sinners? What's the heart of Jesus toward you? The controlling, constraining, compelling, consuming passion of Jesus' life was to go to the cross, absorb the fiery baptism of God's holy judgment against sin so that you wouldn't have to for the glory of God. That's the good news of the gospel. Every single day, you wrestle yourself up out of bed in the middle of all the brokenness that exists in your life, in the middle of the mess as it was in the past, as it is in the present, and as it will be in the future, and you need something to motivate you into the next day. You wake up, you walk into the bathroom, stare into the mirror and remind yourself that it was the consuming passion of Jesus Christ's life to go to the cross on your behalf, willingly and joyfully, that you might be saved to the glory of God. That's the good news of the gospel. It gets no better than that. You, in all of your mess, all of your mess as it exists today, all of your mess that he saved you from in the past, and all of the mess that your sin will cause in the future, it delighted Jesus to save you from that. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody forced him into doing it. He wasn't coerced. He set his face to go to the cross from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He got to Jerusalem. They strapped the cross on his back and he kept walking that cross up the hill. Then they hoisted him up on it. And while he was hanging there in that spot, somebody on the right or the left said, hey, couldn't you call down some angels and get yourself down from here? And Jesus in his head probably thought, I absolutely could, but I don't want to. Because your salvation for God's glory 
was the consuming passion of Jesus's life. Don't just be abstract and theological about the truth of the gospel. That's the heart of Jesus for you. But also, don't be egotistical about it. Look at the person next to you. That's likely someone in your family. Someone in your family, and you know all of their mess, past, present, and you can likely predict with a fair amount of accuracy what their mess is going to look like in the future because you know who they are. And it was the controlling, consuming, compelling passion of Jesus Christ to go to the cross for them and save them for the glory of God. I spend hours every week looking at different passages in the Bible, putting together sermons so that I can preach the same message every Sunday. And I will do it until either the Lord takes me home or I retire. It is the joy of Jesus's life to go to the cross on behalf of sinners and save them for the glory of God. The message gets no better than that. Sometimes I tuck it in at the end. This time we're just leading with it as the headline. That's true for you and it's true for the broken, sinful person sitting next to you. It's true for the sinful person that you sit across from at school, the sinful person that you work with, the sinful people on your kids' sports teams or in their dance troupe or alongside them in the band. It's true for the person that lives one town over. It's true for the people that live in a different country, speak a different language that you'll never see and you'll never visit, but one day you'll be reunited with in heaven. Jesus loves to save sinners for the glory of God. It consumed him all of his life. It consumes him now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, that one of those sinners would stand before the Lord in the moment of their fiery judgment and he might rise on their behalf and say, this is my child. My righteousness covers them. That's the consuming passion of Jesus' life, to glorify God in that way. What compelled him supremely was a collection of a whole people, global in nature, every tribe, nation, and tongue, saved and ransomed and redeemed as the people of God to the display of God's glory. And those two things, Jesus' love for people and his passion for the glory of God, they don't have to run counter to one another. They fit together perfectly, like two perfectly cut puzzle pieces. The only satisfying part of a puzzle is when you snap one piece into the other. That's the only reason to do puzzles. It's how wonderful it is when that thing clicks into place. And the more pieces you get in the puzzle, the more satisfying little clicks you get to do. That's how Jesus' love for his people and his zeal for the glory of God fit together. The glory is all God's. The blessing is all ours. The cross brings those two things together and snaps them into place. Jesus is passionate about the display of God's glory. He's passionate about the saving of God's people. He's consumed by both of those throughout his life all the way to the cross. And it is at the cross where the king reminds the world who is king. It's at the cross where the king reminds Satan 
who is king. The cross makes visible the fullness of the king's eternal character. The cross makes known the fullness of the king's love for the people that he created. And the cross projects the fullness of the king's glory for all to see. Jesus was consumed by the fulfillment of the eternally decreed purpose for which he was sent. From cross or from cradle to cross to crown of glory, nothing would deter him, nothing would dampen his passion, nothing would derail the objective of his life. That's the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. We could stop this sermon right there and that would be enough. But you know I'm way more verbose than that and there are more verses to go. So this comes off the heels of that. Jesus makes a statement about division. Verse 51, do you think I came here to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's the consuming passion of Jesus' life that he would save God's people for God's glory. And that will be the dividing line upon which humanity is separated. Jesus, he's the line upon which humanity is divided. And he goes on to say that what comes with him is a sort of division. He didn't come to bring peace, he came to bring division. And that's a little bit confusing because just before Jesus' birth, surrounding it, there were two passages that spoke very powerfully about the peace that Jesus would bring. John the Baptist is born and Zechariah is standing there looking at his son, The end of chapter one, Luke chapter one, he says, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine light on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to lead our feet into the way of peace. And then when Jesus is born, there's a multitude of heavenly hosts with an angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. And now here's Jesus from his own mouth saying, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. So where does that leave us? Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. Peace given to humanity thanks to his saving, substitutionary, fiery, baptism-suffering death. That gives the people of God a deep, soul-calming peace that's both temporal here in this life and eternal before God. The peace and division that Jesus is talking about here in this passage is something a little bit different. It's actually the next verses that give us the context for that. He tells us that there will be division even in households. He's the line upon which that division will take place. A line that divides people into those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are submitted to the rule and reign of God and those who live in rebellion to the rule and the reign of God. In other places, Jesus talks about there being a separating between sheep and goats, wheat and chaff, trees that bear good fruit, trees that don't. That division, Jesus says, runs its way even all the way through nuclear families. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. Doesn't say anything about son-in-laws and mother-in-laws, but I assume the passage can be extended to the rest of our family relationships. Some within a family may submit 
to the king, while others do not. Even within the family unit, Jesus says, there will be those who are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus and those who are not. And he is the line upon which that division will take place. I want to offer some pastoral reflection here for just a moment. The Bible makes clear that followers of Jesus are a unified people at peace with the king, longing for the world to know, love, and glorify him. So Jesus is talking about a division that will take place within humanity. But followers of Jesus are a unified people. That's a unity that is purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus is consumed with a passion to save God's people for God's glory. He is drawing together a body that is global in its nature. Includes people from every country, every ethnic group all over the globe. And despite all of the cultural differences that come from those places, they're united as one people because of their submission to the king. That also includes people from within certain cultures who might differ on societal issues or who have different dispositions and different personalities and who maybe wouldn't just be friends if left to their natural tendencies. But you're brought together in the blood of Jesus, the rule and reign of the king, unites you in such a way that the body of Christ is one despite all of the difference. So a unified people. And what marks that people is peace with the king. Jesus bought that for you on the cross. We live in it, we walk in it, we cherish it, we experience it now in part, we will experience it eternally in full when we stand before the king. A unified people at peace with the king, longing for the world to know, love, and glorify him. The first two of those things are challenging enough. Figuring out how is the body of Christ to live in unity with one another, particularly in continually divisive cultural and societal circumstances. Figuring out how to walk at peace with the king. We know that we have it, but how do we live it? That's a challenge in and of itself. And then longing for the world to know, love, and glorify God. We will never long for the world to do that so long as we position the world lost in its sin as the enemy. When I say the world, I mean the people. So long as we set the people up as the enemy, we'll never long for them to know, love, and glorify God, to submit to Jesus. We'll think that they're the enemy. So long as we position the world as this thing that we hate, we're never going to long for them to know the king. We might long to be right in opposition to them, to display ourselves superior to them. What we need is for our hearts to position the enemy correctly. The enemy is sin. The enemy is Satan. It ought to break our hearts that there are people enslaved to that sin, deceived by Satan. And so yes, you go to work or you go to school and you hear people oftentimes talking about and celebrating the reality of the sin and the evil and the brokenness in their life. And you maybe get really tired of it. But it ought to be a reminder each and every time that you hear that, that there are people in this world 
ensnared by the reality of sin, held captive by the lies of Satan. And it gave Jesus joy to go to the cross that he might redeem even those people. And in case you ever need a reminder, remind yourself that you were one of those people at one point, and it gave Jesus great joy to glorify God by ripping you out of the hand of Satan and holding you tightly in his, and now he presents you to the Father clean and righteous. It's a consuming passion of Jesus' life to do that for sinners. And until we understand, like Paul, of whom we are the worst, we'll set the world up as the enemy, we'll position lost people as the opponent, and though we might never say it out loud, thank it their deaths. Hmm, they got what they deserved. Rather than thanking it their deaths. Oh, they got what they deserved. And there was something else available. Jesus is the line upon which humanity is divided. Some in submission to him, some not. And Jesus goes on to say that he is also the line upon which history is divided. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say a storm is coming, and so it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this present time? Jesus is the line upon which history is divided. Now, we kind of know this implicitly because when we even just talk about dates. We talk about B.C. and A.D., or that got switched some time ago to B.C.E., before Common Era, and C.E., Common Era, but jokes on them, they didn't change the starting point. Like, that's still Jesus that we split that into. And so all of history for a time was awaiting a Savior. Then the Savior came, and for 33 years he was present. And now all of history since that time is awaiting his return. And so while he's there present, Jesus looks around at this large crowd, thousands upon thousands, that at the start of the sermon we were told were trampling upon one another, trying to get to, to Jesus. And he looks at them, at this huge crowd. And he says, you dingbats, nice job with the weather. Figure out what really matters. You see a cloud pop up there in the west. You know that storms are coming. You feel a south wind blow through. You know that a heat wave is coming. But why can you not figure out that the king is here? That's what really matters. Don't miss the reality of who I am, Jesus says. The line that's going to divide humanity and the line that divides history. And Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, he'll be the line upon which our eternity divides. Again, some pastoral reflection. Passages like this, whether it be from 49 down to 59, or really if you extended it all the way back to verse 38 and took it through the end of the chapter that talk about Jesus' future return and the judgment that's going to come with him. They're not given to us to make us obsessed with figuring out when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus' warnings of judgment remind his followers to be reverent, aware, and urgent. The purpose of these kinds of passages is to make us reverent of the king, in awe of him. I've said this before, but I truly do believe that the best thing you can do for your heart in relationship with Jesus is to learn to be reverent and in awe in all things in your life. 
at all times. Learning to see our circumstances and our situations day by day, season by season, moment by moment as opportunities for awe and reverence for who God is, sovereignly and providentially working in all things in life. And so yes, when we think the big theological thoughts about like Luke 12, the frightening power of God, we should be in awe. When we think the big intellectual theological thoughts about God's unthinkable love, we should be in awe. When we think about his provision for us financially, we should be in awe. When we think about the beauty of Jesus, we should be in awe. When we think about the staggering reality of his powerful and triumphant work on the cross, we should be in awe. When we think about the staggering reality of his powerful and triumphant return on a white horse, we should be in awe. But again, don't just be abstract and theological about it. Be practical. Like, shrink it down to your, actually every, to your actual everyday lived experience. This morning, before coming in here, I went for a run. While I was out on my run, the sun came up. Anytime I see sunrises now, I think of this quote from John Piper. It's in a book of his called Providence. He says this, he says, I used to look at sunrises when I was jogging and think that God had created a beautiful world. Then it became less general and more specific, more personal. I say, every morning God paints a different sunrise. He never gets tired of doing it again and again. But then it struck me. No, he doesn't do it again and again. He never stops doing it. The sun is always rising somewhere in the world. God guides the sun 24 hours every day and paints sunrises at every moment, century after century, without one second of respite and never grows weary or less thrilled with the work of his hands. Even when cloud cover keeps us from seeing it, God is painting sunrises above the clouds. Something as simple as a sunrise that maybe you see sometimes or different times of year or sometimes you're forced to see one because you had to get up early. It's the ability to have awe and reverence for a God who is sovereign and providential, who's controlling all things. But push it like one step further. Because it's not just that God's painting sunrises at all times somewhere on the globe. He's simultaneously painting sunsets somewhere else. So the sun's always rising somewhere and God's full attention goes to painting a sunrise while simultaneously somewhere else the sun is setting and his full attention goes to painting the sunset. And while he's doing that, he's sustaining you with the very breath you have to breathe. And while he's doing that, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he's clothing sparrows and daisies. He's growing grass. He's causing waves to crash on thousands of miles of shoreline all over the world. He's causing humpback whales out in the middle of the ocean, hundreds of miles from the nearest human eyes, to jump and just declare his glory by humpback whaling. Like we should be in awe and reverent of that. And yet Jesus says, that's not even the most important thing to him. All of that is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our awe and our reverence. But the thing that God really cares about is the display of his glory in the redeeming of his people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And that is the thing that ought to catch our eye and stir our hearts to worship and adoration. And so Jesus says, there's a time coming where I will be the dividing line upon which all of humanity is divided. And it gives 
God great joy to display his glory by having you on the salvation side of the line. It consumed Jesus's life. It was the passion of his being to purchase a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue for the glory of God. That should give us awe, reverence. These passages should make us aware of reality, deepest reality, that Jesus is coming back that we're looking and longing for the return of the king, that we're living and laboring in light of it. And it ought to create an urgency inside of us about the lost who exist in the world. That leads to the final piece here of Luke chapter 12. It's a parable. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the ruler, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Then you won't, or then he won't drag you before the judge. The judge hand you over to the bailiff and the bailiff throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last cent. Followers of Jesus are consumed by the same passion that consumes Jesus. In this parable, there's a man who apparently has a debt. We're not told what the debt is from or why he has it. Simply that he's on his way to court. And he knows he's guilty and he's going to have to repay. And Jesus says that it would be wiser for that person to settle it out of court than to drag out the proceedings and end up paying every last penny of that debt. And the point is this, Jesus with this large crowd of people around him, he's been teaching his disciples, he's shifted his attention to the fullness of the crowd, thousands upon thousands of people. And what does he say? Eternity's real. Settle before it's too late. Take care of the debt before you're dragged into the court of heaven and you stand before the judge and you have to pay every last penny. Because every individual that doesn't settle that debt ahead of time will go into their moment of judgment and be responsible for paying the full price. And sin against an eternal, infinite, holy, righteous God carries a debt that is infinite and eternal. There will be no paying it off. The rejection and the punishment will be swift, complete, and it will be eternal. And so Jesus says, do what's smart. Do what's wise. Settle it before you stand before the judge. And the only way to settle that is by submitting to the king. Jesus, who underwent the fiery baptism of God's consuming, refining judgment. He's consumed by a passion for the glory of God and the salvation of God's people. And he's pleading that people in this massive crowd settle with God. He's been laying out the reality of eternity throughout this sermon, painting its realities, highlighting its significance, warning of its judgment. Now he tells this group of people that he's consumed by the passion to rescue God's people from that judgment for God's glory. And he's pleading that people get on the right side of that dividing line. And so the question for God's people is, is our passion the same? Do we have a passion for the display of God's glory, a passion for the salvation of God's people? That's the passion that compelled, constrained, controlled, and consumed Jesus. And it's to be the passion that compels, constrains, controls, and consumes his people. And so we get passages like this where Jesus reminds us of the reality and the significance and the truth of judgment reminds us of the reality, the significance, and the truth of eternity. He puts it before our hearts and minds so that we might be in awe and in reverence and we might be urgent. Urgent that people understand. 
And when we get in moments where our heart is cold to that reality, the antidote isn't to become obsessed with figuring out when Jesus is going to return. The antidote isn't to become people who are divisive for the sake of division. It's not to try a little harder. It's not even to read Revelation and shove the reality of that in front of our eyes every day. The answer is the cross. The antidote is the cross. The answer, when our heart grows a little cold or a little hard toward lost people in the world, is to look back at the cross and pray that the Holy Spirit would give us a growing passion for the glory of God that burns buried deep down in the deepest parts of our heart and get that re-centered on the gospel. The glory of God and the saving of God's people is Jesus' consuming passion, and it's to be our consuming passion as well. And so, you look at yourself in the mirror every morning there, trying to get yourself going and manage the difficulties of life in a broken world, trying to navigate whatever your current circumstances are and trying to keep your heart focused on the gospel, what should you remind yourself? That it's Jesus' controlling, constraining, compelling, consuming passion to rescue God's people for God's glory and that you're one of them that there's a lost person out there right now who's also one of them. And you might be the means by which God is going to work to display his glory and save that person. And the only thing that rekindles a heart that is cold toward that reality is a reminder of just how good Jesus is. How good he's been to us how good he is to all of God's people. Over the last couple of years, sort of like the last season of my life, I've been drawn over and over and over again back to the hymn, How Marvelous, How Wonderful, which was a poem written by Charles Gabriel in 1905, and then it was set to music later. And I find that when my heart does grow cold, the lyrics of this song help me to remember what I am to be in awe of. The lyrics say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sin and my sorrow, and he made it his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary, suffered and died alone. And when with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, it will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. That's the goodness of Jesus. Is the passion of Jesus' life. The goodness of Jesus toward his people to suffer and die alone on the cross that he might rescue God's people for God's glory. So we're gonna end by singing about that goodness it's a song that we've sung a couple of, of times, but not a ton. And so I just want to remind you of the words. The song is called The Goodness of Jesus, and the chorus says this. It's kind of a modern sort of hymn, but the chorus says, Oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus, satisfied he is all that I need. May it be come what may that I rest all my days in the goodness of Jesus. When your heart gets a little cold, when you're maybe a little ambivalent about the lost, when you're tempted to set up lost 
people as the enemy. Remind yourself of the goodness of Jesus to you and that his goodness extends to all that he wants to save, which could very well be the person you're struggling with that day. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. You can stand.